Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works, mental illness, mental health. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Now, as kids grow up and learn about mental health and well-being, which they do now, they didn't used to, but now they do, that learning probably primarily happens in two places, at home and at school. As our awareness and understanding of mental health increases, the educational institutions where children and young adults spend so much time, childcare, primary school, secondary school, tertiary education, have a big role to play in promoting better mental health and helping to prevent mental illness. So what are they doing? Should they be doing more? Um, We'll be joined by a, a, a guest who knows a lot about this in a moment. But first, Ian, you think, don't you, that because the role of the extended family and of the church and of other community institutions has declined, the education system now has to take on a bigger role in helping young people develop good mental health practices? Correct. I love teachers. I love preschool teachers. I love primary school teachers. I love secondary school teachers. I even love university teachers, being one, and others. Yes, as a society, we have become incredibly dependent on those social structures, those enduring social structures through the critical years of brain, social and cognitive development. So we expect more and more of our schools, of our teachers, of our educational institutions uh, a bit unreasonable. And it seems during the COVID period, we expect them to do almost everything and to be out there mm. holding society together when the rest of it's basically falling apart. So, yes, it's a hugely important issue for mental health in the future. How do we maximise the opportunities in the educational sector? How do we support it? How do we work with a really principal goal of education, cognitive and emotional development? So we end up with the kind of people who can function best in this modern and challenging world in which we live well, our guest, Mark Scott, is uniquely placed to talk about these issues. He ran the ABC from 2006 to 2016, where he was my boss. He then ran the New South Wales Department of Education from 2016 to 2021, uh, where he was my kid's boss. And now he's the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney, where he's again one of my kid's bosses. It seems when Mark decides to move on to a new job, one of the big questions he asks is, will I be in control of an O'Loughlin? Uh, Mark, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hi, James. What a great professional challenge it's been working with you, O'Loughlin's, <laughs> through the generations. Good to be with you. Good to be with you too, Ian. We're lucky to have your guiding hand. Um, some might say that the core business of schools and universities is teaching maths and science and English and engineering. Mental health isn't really core business. What's your view? Yeah, well, I don't think that's right, really. I think what we're really doing is uh, preparing young people, helping young people live their best lives now, and also to prepare them for a, a life of learning. And so, you know, I think there's always been a strong well-being aspect of teaching. You know, I think teachers in schools care for young people. We want them to be fit and healthy and well and want them to be at their best. So I think that's always been part of the responsibility. But I think even, you know, if I look at it through a university lens, you take these years of 
uh, young people's life, you know, and, and what precious years they are. Uh, and what you're really trying to do is equip them to flourish through the rest of their lives, to make a contribution to society, but to be their best selves. And and part of that, I think, is having the skills and mastery to kind of understand themselves, understand their own complexity, understand how they interact with the the world around them, and to and to to be of their best. And part of that is to be physically well. Part of that is to be academically strong, of course, in a university setting, and then part of that is to be in mental, mentally good health as well and to be as on top of life as you can be. So I think it's a central part of, of our responsibility to equip young people with the skills they need for that. The, the idea of preparing the whole person, not just to know English and maths, but to be ready to live a life, that's, that's always been a part of of education's aim, but is it fair to say now that as we know more about mental health, actually implementing that into the curriculum, perhaps when I went to school we did you know half an hour of it in year 10 in personal development one afternoon, actually implementing it more holistically in the, in, into the curriculum is, a, is, is something we should be working toward? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think in a way uh, and Ian, Ian's in the great position to talk about this, but we've now, yeah, we, I think we understand mental health and well-being that much more. I think we understand and have a language around anxiety. We have a language and an understanding around uh, depression um, and other mental illnesses as well. And I think what we have an understanding of is that just like our physical health, decisions we take, actions that we take, um, make us um, stronger and more resilient in some circumstances, or also decisions we can make could increase our level of risk of illness. And so I think part of the educative process is to provide an understanding of that, an appropriate understanding of that in the right context, and also um, to give students, young people, the skills that they need. And so I think you see things in schools now that you would have never imagined seeing, like students learning meditation or a sense of uh, mindfulness or being able to talk and uh, articulate, uh, speak a language of um, mental illness in a way that they hadn't in the past. And I think that is very much, um, you know, I think there's a language and a way of framing a discussion now that certainly wouldn't have been the case when we were students or we were at school. And I think there would have been a an avoidance almost of going to those kinds of conversations. And now I think there's more of a confidence than than there would have been in the past. Ian, Ian how young can kiddies be when they learn mental health? Can you do it in kindy? Can you do it in, in preschool? And what can you do when you start? It starts from the start. One of the great projects I'm personally tied up with at the moment is enhancing parenting techniques from day one, actually. So the social interactions you have, the people you mix with, one of the things that I uh, had some pleasure of participating in a few years ago through Prime Minister and Cabinet was the policy transformation from early childhood care, you know, childcare centres, to early childhood education. Not the education for flashcards to learn how to do maths when you're two or enter a university when you're four, but actually to learn to socially transact that very much that enrichment that happens. We have a process in Australia now called Thrive by Five, led by the ex-South Australian Premier Jay Wetherill, the enrichment of the early years, even before you get to education, because by the time you get to formal education, about uh, 20% of Australian kids are already well behind and about 10% of them already have major difficulties by the time they arrive at primary school. So the early intervention bit, the learning bit, and to see the education possibility, not to see it, as I say, as flashcards, learning to read and 
add up. But learning to socialise, learning the cognitive skills, learning the emotional skills, learning the actual what we would call the social brain, not just the simple instructive or transactional brain. And that's really important. So that, that enrichment issue, for which there's a lot of evidence, really matters. So education has become a hugely important issue. Now, it's also become very competitive, of course. And so I'd really want to ask Mark about trends in education because things like in our world, ATAR scores, things like entering selective high schools, in things, national policies like the introduction of NAPLAN, which I always thought about was about resource distribution, not about actually just testing every kid all the time on narrow skills. There's other stuff that goes on that doesn't necessarily run in the direction that we're talking about. And this, I think, this puts teachers and schools under tremendous pressure. I was really impressed when Mark became the head of New South Wales Education. He made the comment about the curriculum didn't seem to have changed much and the highest school certificate probably hadn't changed much since I did it, and that was a really long time ago. Mm. And uh, now he's entered the higher education sector. I suspect he finds that uh, <laughs> things probably haven't changed that much since he was at university either. This curriculum idea, the, the idea that you picked up about curriculum as distinct from something added on at the side that you might do on a Friday afternoon when you've got nothing else to do, is a really central kind of idea that I think those in the education worlds are being asked to deal with. So I'd be really interested in what Mark made of that through his time as someone who's looking at these things mm. and arrives and finds, you know what, they haven't changed that much. And there may be these other things, these fiercely competitive things as parents try to make their kids the best kids, the most competitive kids on a narrow range of skills not on actually the wider skills for life. Yeah, Mark? So let, let me um, start just where you were addressing the question on early childhood, uh, early childhood education, because I think it's so important, Ian. Uh, Jeff Masters, who runs the Australian Council for Educational Research, uh, said to me when I started in New South Wales education, he said, never forget the single greatest predictor of a child's educational attainment on the last day of school is that child's level of educational attainment on the first day of school. Wow. Very, very sobering stuff. And I don't think it is the flashcards, um, as you were indicating, uh, Ian, but it is about early exposure to reading, early exposure to, in a sense, the, the self-discipline that's required to be able to sit and to engage with others, a lot of those social um, skills that then but gaps early on in school become amplified throughout. And I think one of the missed opportunities that I think Jay Weatherall is uh, absolutely onto in the work that he is doing, there was a lot of focus and a lot of extra money that in um, the Gonski reforms went into school-age education, and early childhood education was almost out of scope for that. I think, you know, every dollar we spend in quality early childhood education and in those vital early years uh, um, delivers a multiplier effect of benefit that you see not just throughout the rest of schooling but throughout the rest of um, a person's life. I think um, you're right, there is a tension, there's a pressure around performance in education League tables on how schools have done in the HSC. Um, you, 13 years of schooling summarised in an ATAR. There does seem to be a lot of pressure. NAPLAN results reported around the country. But I think there is this pressure. One of the things I saw uh, around the HSC in New South Wales um, was a sense of real concern that parents had about how much pressure the HSC was putting on 
students. It's interesting, back when uh, uh, we went through and did the HSC, um, there was something called the school estimate. And so you did your exam and the school had estimated and how you do in the exam and that's how they worked it out. And, and, and there was a feeling at the time, I think, that the estimate was a bit unfair. It put too much pressure on the exam. And so they decided to get rid of the estimate um, and instead do school-based assessment tasks. So you do assessment tasks across year 11 and 12 and then do the exam. And though they added up to being worth 50% each. And I think the feeling was that would take pressure off young people. It didn't take pressure off young people. It added the pressure. Mm. It meant that the it wasn't just the exam at the end of year 12. The heat started all the way at the beginning of year 11 and went all the way through. And one of the interesting things I think you can sit you know, when you're our age and look back on and say a lot of that pressure just, it's just not that important. You know, the difference between an ATAR of 95 or 97 or 67 and, and, and 70 is just not that important. And that life will present you with many more opportunities and many doors will open that you couldn't imagine when you were 16 or 17. And you just have to be patient and live your life and be your best self and see what opportunities open up. And I think all three of us would probably testify that our careers have taken paths that we would have never um, possibly imagined when we were 16 or 17. Um, and so when I hear parents and talk with to parents, I think they are as concerned in the main about taking pressure off young people and helping young people find a balance and an equilibrium and to keep some perspective uh, than they are about, you know, trying to get young people to study and focus and to engage. And so I think there is a community recognition of a sense of the whole person and the whole performance rather than it all being summarised by a single mark. And I, I, I sense this kind of tension out there to try and protect young people at times from the pressure that the system might seem to be presenting or that media coverage on education might seem to be presenting mm. um, and the competitive pressure that often underpins things like university entry. There's a couple of issues there. there. There's, as you say, that tension between taking the, the the pressure off young people doing their HSC, maybe studying for university exams, um, but also not taking too much of it off because maybe I'm looking back at it with rose-coloured glasses, but that sense of having achieved something and got through those years meant an enormous amount to me and it, it made me think – well, I did it. You know, I didn't get 100% yeah. in everything, but gosh, that was hard and I did it. And I feel armed with the skills now to go and do other hard things. So, so there's that, getting that right. But there's also the question of if in parallel to all those difficult things that you're doing in particularly years 11 and 12, have you learned enough about how to maintain your own mental health, how to look for the danger signs? Are they only things that people who, you know, who hit some crisis and go to counselling learn? So there's that as well. Are, are people learning enough in schools to arm them with the, with the knowledge they need about their own mental health, Ian? So the basic answer, James, no, not enough. Right. So, you know, we've done sex education forever, thankfully. I mean, I, I, often these podcast, Mark, I run through my children. Honourable daughter number one, who's now not young, when she had to put a condom on a banana in year six, she said, I don't know what this is, but everyone thinks it's very important that I know this skill very early. <laughs> I said, yes, sweetheart, it's good that you know that skill. You know, oh. drug education, um, several have had to put up with uh, you know, Happy Harold and several other things over their lives, long before they've started using substances, but they get the idea it's going to matter. 
early on. We are seeing more emphasis on this as earlier said about meditation, about mindfulness, but there are things like cognitive behavioural skills, coping with stress. You said a really important thing, James, exposing yourself actually to challenges and learning to cope with them. Life is full of challenges and will continue to be. We aren't, we can't, we're not trying to create a stress-free world. So I think one of the issues we need to build into the sort of curriculum kind of ideas is not just, they're not just fancy add-ons. They're the ways that you actually understand how you work, what skills you need, how you transact with the challenges that you face in life. And that can be learnt and, and, and built on continuously through the developmental programs that we see. And these are the essential skills, that on the controlling your own things like anxiety, but also on the positive side, on the socialisation side, on the dealing with diversity, with dealing with inclusion, dealing with others who are quite different from yourself in particular ways. And the more we know about these things, I think the more we have the opportunity in schools to actually transact them in particular ways. So I think this is a kind of issue of priorities. I think there is, related to that, the strong issue of schools working effectively with parents, with communities, the areas in which they live. Uh, not to be rude about New South Wales education, but maybe New South Wales health is a better example. When you have very top-down, you must all do it the same way, and NAPLAN or others do it the same way. We need to also take account of the variations that we have, different ways of learning, the people learn in different ways, they need different sets of experiences, they need to mix in different kinds of ways. And, and schools should provide this great social opportunity for that type of learning that's very hard to find uh, in the wider world. I, I'd add to that, I, I think um, one of the uh, key thinkers who I was struck really influenced uh, a lot of teachers in New South Wales education was the Stanford um, psychologist Carol Dweck and her whole thinking around growth mindset. And I, I think that is something that's now really being taught in our schools well. And I think it goes to what you were saying about, you know, needing to prove to yourself that you can do it. I think one of the things that we're really been trying to do in schools is to help students understand agency, the fact that there is a link between their effort and their focus and their, their, their commitment and outcomes that they see and that they aren't just victims of the world. And part of that is also the, the, the language that you can have. Well, I'm not a maths person. I'm no good at maths. You know, yeah. uh, a, a fixed mindset that just rules yourself out. I think what we've tried to do in schools is to say, no, um, if you, if you focus, if you do the work, if you try, if you learn from your failures, if in fact you're resilient, then you're far more likely to get far further along than you may have thought in the, the first place. And I think this is a key to what we can see as being tools for lifelong learning. I mean, we, from where I sit now, you can, you can think that we are preparing young people at the University of Sydney for uh, careers that don't exist at the moment, for jobs that don't exist at the moment, using technology that hasn't been invented uh, at the moment. So they're going to need to be learning their entire lives. And so what we're trying to do is to give them the skills to keep learning. And so um, I think that's what a growth mindset does. It says, I believe that I can master something different, something challenging, something new. I will be strong enough um, intellectually. I'll be strong enough in my own mental well-being to be able to deal with frustrations and setbacks and failures I'll be able to learn from those things and be resilient enough to kind of step out, step forward, keep moving, and finally get to a point of mastery. And I think you can make an argument because you can't pick 
what the jobs are going to be, the careers are going to be, the technology is going to be, a lot of those kinds of skills, that kind of growth mindset skill, the resilient skills, that these are fundamental um, to absolutely being successful in life and being able to uh, develop through all the challenges and changes of a career. And do you think New South Wales schools or Australian schools are doing enough to do or to achieve all those excellent aims at the moment, or what could be done better? Well, look, I, I think as Ian said, I think there's an argument that um, not enough is being done, but I think the trend line and the trajectory has been positive. From what I could see, there was just far more awareness of these kinds of issues in schools now, far more training available for uh, teachers. I think you'd go to many schools, um, and, I, and, and strikingly, I think primary schools, they're not exclusively primary schools, that had made a feature about um, attitudes to mental health and well-being, attitudes uh, towards growth mindset, if you like, that were a hallmark of, um, or a very, very central part of, of the way they they taught and the way they thought, and giving kids age, uh, awareness to uh, identify where they had agency, where they had control. So um, I think we're doing more of it. I think the language exists now. I think there's more engagement. And I think another thing driving schools towards this, and Ian's written and spoken a lot about this, is just the sheer prevalence of mental health issues and challenges that we're facing in schools. I mean, I think every school is dealing with um, increasing levels of anxiety. Um, the number of students in New South Wales schools who are being identified in anxiety and, and the push we had to have uh, counsellors in schools and psychologists in schools was just indicative that there was um, there were real challenges afoot with our young people. And so that, I think, drives schools more to think through. What do we need to do to give young people the tools to be able to manage some of these challenges in the best way that they can? Ian, you'd probably say that we need to do more to prevent, i.e. more education about mental uh, mental health and also to cure when things get bad, have the resources there. What's one thing you'd like to see on each side, prevention and cure, more of in, in Australian schools? Yeah, so the prevention issue is important because there's sort of levels of prevention. So Often you detect problems, you'll see something at the moment, anxiety in a kid, and you're trying to prevent anxiety, depression, substance abuse later on. Often you see kids with developmental problems before school when you're trying to prevent them becoming later on. Sometimes, of course, you're seeing kids in social difficulties. If you look at the prevalence of, or look at the incidence of onset of problems, one of my favourite graphs has its really high, less than five, and then it falls during primary school. Okay, what happened? <laughs> Go primary school teachers they're such fabulous people and kids get to get, exist outside their families they go actually out into the wider world and they actually get these additional inputs we underrate the effect the preventative effect actually of wider socialization outside of families on an ongoing basis and how actually productive that is for kids mental health and development so the prevention issue and the learning of universal skills like cognitive behavioral skills managing anxiety promoting socialization these have universal effects the next level though is identifying kids who've got problems. Before age five, there's a lot of neurodevelopmental problems, kids with attentional difficulties, kids with social difficulties, kids with anxiety, which are driven by, sometimes by social difficulties, but a lot by variations in brain development. The earlier they get intervention, the better. And in fact, there's a whole school readiness. If we intervene early, you know, for autism and other things, by age two, not by age eight, you know, to actually do things for attentional problems, for developing the focus that's required to succeed in formal education, you've got to do stuff before age five. 
Then on an ongoing basis, you know, anxiety dominates the situation in primary school. There's a lot of issues that need to be picked up, detected, often working with parents and working with schools. So a lot of the role, I think, of the formal health system is providing assessment and advice where a lot of the intervention actually takes place through parents and schools working in combination. There have been a lot of, and many well-tested programs, many Australian developed, like Triple P Parenting by Matt Sanders at the University of Queensland and others, to do that. We haven't been, frankly, that good at rolling it out. So we sort of know what to do, but it's been hard because we tend to have these separate things, families, educations, health, and, you know, we haven't really been good at bringing it all together. What Mark was alluding to is now the conversation is much more common. We all got a fair idea what we're talking about. The next level is then coordinating that in the schools and areas in which you live. And I, I do, and I'm interested in Mark's comment about this, I hear a lot of comment back from public schools that they're now identifying a lot of problems and being asked to respond to a lot of problems and in communities where there are higher rates of problems for various reasons, but they struggle with the resource allocation in association with that. You know, one of the difficulties with screening in the whole of health is the more problems you detect, there's an expectation you're going to do something about it. And I think this is where it gets really tricky there is a high prevalence of anxiety. There is a high prevalence of learning difficulties. There is a high prevalence of neurodevelopmental problems at various ages. But we've got to figure out how to bring education, health into useful partnerships, particularly with parents, to have a greater effect. And I wonder in your experiences, Mark, you know, when dealing with those tough issues, particularly in our public schools, you know, where, where you can see progress, where you can see examples of that's, you know, responding to the level of need, which was never really factored in before to the education system. I think it has been a scramble to to get the resources, and often those resources aren't, you know, the cash as much as the um, the the skilled staff that you need. So it was really a multi-year effort to get psychologists in high schools. But I think it's interesting now that there's a sense of, high schools need psychologists. And as soon as we were beginning to roll that through, primary schools, I think, were rightly pointing out, well, they could do with um, access to psychologists as well, but there's a finite pool. I think there was an interesting argument as to whether, in fact, your psychologist needed to um, be also trained as teachers. So it took some years to kind of resolve that issue through industrially, really. But the access question is an important one. It's interesting, um, under the Gonski funding model that, that we have here in New South Wales, more money goes to schools in disadvantaged areas. I think one of the most interesting pieces of research I, show, I, I saw, though, said that when you get to the most disadvantaged schools, so the bottom 10% SES, whether just giving them more money, even under the funding formula, goes anywhere near to meeting the needs, in, in fact, of those severely disadvantaged communities. And, and there was a sense that you know, those, some of those schools needed three, four, five times the amount of money than, than other schools in the state needed. And often it was precisely around these areas. Some of the most disadvantaged schools I went to, they were spending significant money on health-related resources, getting a nurse in, getting a dentist in, getting a speech pathologist in and a hearing specialist in and access to more um, uh, counselling services and psychology services, not just for the students, but for their families as well. And often the school was the most secure part 
of social infrastructure and the most trusted part of social infrastructure that many families engaged with. And so in a way, I think part of the more successful models is using the credibility and connection with schools to be able to connect and engage and put some of more of that social infrastructure around communities. It was very interesting last year um, when I was working the department during the first uh, COVID outbreak, we had more, you know, traffic to the New South Wales education uh, website at times than the New South Wales health website, and, because in a sense we were seen as this credible source of information for families. And in reaching into families of non-English speaking backgrounds, we saw the importance of the school in providing information to families that families trusted because they had that daily connection back with the school community. So I think I think some of the traditional service mode delivery structures. Um, might well be enhanced by stronger and closer connection with schools. We're trying that in some Aboriginal communities, connected community schools, health and community services and education, um, all working together to provide integrated solutions uh, to communities around some of these issues. Yeah, and thoughts on that? That sounds hopeful, doesn't it? Yes. I think that's exactly where we've got to be headed, particularly, particularly in the more disadvantaged communities, I've uh, seen some in Western New South Wales and some Aboriginal communities. The school is the central, trusted, organised area. So schools actually running health clinics, schools actually running preschools, schools providing safe places, those things needing to come together. So uh, whether we like it or not, I think we've got one thing in society we all believe in that still matters, and that's kind of access to education as a fundamental access to opportunity and making sure that these health issues, which are often, often detected, I think one of the things we should play up is how good teachers are at detecting things. Yes. One of my favourite uh, high school teachers said uh, when a parent was giving her grief recently about her very special daughter and very special things, she said, look, I've seen about 15,000 young women grow up. I think I've got a fairly good idea that your daughter's actually a bit different to the others and what she might require. <laughs> you know, that kind of – I'm a parent of many children, but I'm certainly not the parent of 15,000. I certainly haven't seen that many, you know, go through these sort of sets of areas. There's a tremendous – bank of knowledge in experienced teachers, in continuity in schools and continuity over time in schools. So I think that's, you know, seeing schools as so much more than just that bit that does the formal education. In fact, I was in the Academy of Social Sciences meeting this morning with some Nobel Prize winners like Peter Doherty and other people. And one of the really interesting kind of sets of discussions there was around kind of this whole education kind of focus. What is it that people learn over time? And what are the skills that they really require? How are they acquired over time? And how do we make use of the real social infrastructure that we have in smart ways, not in dumb ways? <laughs> I think this is one of the challenges. You know, I don't say the traditionalists or the conservatives, but those people just go on and on and on about reading, writing, arithmetic kind of things, a very narrow set of skills, as distinct from the opportunity to build a much smarter, more cohesive society with people who've got who have a range of skills. One of the things I'd ask, like to ask Mark about that, some of the most innovative things that I'd seen tried to move away from simple chronological age as the reason for progression through education. <laughs> you know, I say this on behalf of many boys who are a bit slow and don't settle so readily and get into a lot of trouble in early adolescence because really frontal lobes haven't quite come on in the same way as some of those very bright young girls and others. And they're developing at different ages. You know, the, the difficulty is I've seen some really innovative models of that often again in the private sector or elsewhere, that have more flexibility built in to allow for that individual variation that's actually happening at key developmental stages. Do you think our education system more generally, Mark, could ever get that smart? It's a, 
It's an important question. And Jeff Masters, I mentioned him uh, earlier, he did a big review of the New South Wales curriculum and he he encouraged Nessa to move more in this direction. Um, but it's very hard to operationalise, uh, frankly. But we've got problems now, I, I, I think, and it, and it, it, it happens at both ends, really, of, uh, of academic achievement. I think you've got some students who are constantly struggling and they never quite master what they need to master in a certain year and they're kicked up to the next year. We don't hold kids back anymore. That's probably a good thing for them socially. But gaps emerge and those gaps are never filled. And then at the other end, you've got the really bright year five kid who's done this before and wants to move on in maths mm. or whatever. And often, you know, I think I think one of the things Jeff Masters identified is often those kids are just punished, you know. They're punished uh, by having to just do more work that they've already done, which is not very interesting and not very exciting and not very engaging. And so yeah. the ability to kind of um, to identify the gaps earlier rather, you know, I, I think it's so interesting to me um, – you know, why some students kind of fail to have mastery and success in schools, often that there are gaps in learning that have not been identified and those gaps continue to grow and they never really catch up. And one of the things I'm confident about, I think you could do things with how you structure curriculum. I think there's another thing that we talk about, which is really an approach to assessment called formative assessment. It's the absolute opposite of HSC and NAPLAN. Um, it is regular assessment, low stress assessment, information constantly back to the teacher, which is an attempting to identify what a student knows, what a student doesn't know, and then to try and deconstruct the root causes to why there's a gap in that student's learning. And actually, I think technology is going to provide wonderful tools for that far more regular, low-key, low-stress diagnostic information back to teachers to help uh, close those gaps. But we know that there is an enormous array of ability and outcome levels in a class. You know, it might be a group of 10-year-olds, but there will be some students there who are only operating at an educational outcome level of a five and six-year-old, and others will be at 14 and 15. And so the ability for a teacher to have a curriculum that allows them to operate to that breadth and for the teacher to have the skills to be able to teach across that breadth, and then the assessment and diagnostic school skills to reinforce that. I think that's that's almost the holy grail of education to equip teachers to be able to deal with that complexity and that breadth. And I think the tools are coming that will make that um, that diagnostic side in particular that much more easier. I, I think of parallels to medicine, actually, that really the kind of diagnostic testing we can do now to put information back in the hands of the professionals who can then embark on a course of action, I think we need more of that diagnostic expertise available in education. So you're now the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney, and it's interesting to see moving from uh, being in charge of schools to being in charge of a university, the differing approaches to mental health, both in education, prevention, and, and cure, what to do if someone's suffering, I'd guess – at university, you're much less likely to get a, a lecturer or a tutor saying to, you know, a student or parents, I think you might have some issues as kindergarten and primary school teachers often do to parents, as Ian was, was saying. There's still, though, resources when students get get stressed. Would, would you agree the, the role of university less about education, about mental health? You hope that's already happened, more about providing services for, for when they're experiencing difficulties? 
Yeah, I think so. And, and, and James, I've only been there for several weeks and so I'm still uh, <laughs> learning quickly. I'm on a, a fast and vibrant learning curve. Ian knows more about this than me. But look, I, I think in a way it goes to supporting infrastructure, right? So do you have the, um, the call centres available and the specialist counsellors available at the end of the line at the right times of the day or night to reach out and to connect and to be able to uh, plug young people who may have issues and concerns into the support network that they need. Do you have, um, do you tap into, I think, the generous peer to peer support stories that can exist? I mean, you know, I, I think people who have experienced challenges with mental health and have been on that kind of journey of understanding themselves are often in an ideal position to provide um, support, stories of hope and resilience, uh, stories of empathy and empowerment to help their colleagues. And and we are looking at, there are a number of um, networks and systems that are set up now that allow us to do that. I think the technology allows us to do that as well. I think there's far more we can do online and with apps and other issues as well to connect communities, to provide information to plug people into support networks and they're they're all things that we are significantly engaged in um, at the university but I think the experience of COVID suggests even more we're asking the question what's the level and volume of counselling you have available what's the level and volume of well-being uh, support that's available and a sense of responsibility we have to students to keep them well and keep them well supported at this time. Yeah what do you think about the university's role then? Yeah, so James, as people on this podcast know, occasionally you and I disagree a little bit. On this one, brains are still growing in 17, 18-year-olds right through in their early 20s and boys quite a bit later then still. So, and, and if anyone had worked in the universities will tell you, the people who arrive at 17 aren't the same as the people who leave at 23 or 24, you know, whatever, the, you know. There's massive development still going on in that particular area. And the opportunities, the enrichment of universities, the social groups, the challenges, the different kinds of ways of thinking – and one of those, I think, is the, is the socialisation. It's, it's actually the exchange with others in a really smart environment. It's a very unique and privileged environment to be in, but really important to maintaining mental health and not becoming very isolatory and not becoming very narrow. I think one of the nice developments in higher education, again, is a movement away from super specialisation to saying, actually, you know what, the American idea of a liberal arts degree, of you know, studying the humanities and studying science, we're not simply producing people for the jobs of today. In fact, Peter Doherty, Nobel Prize winner in immunology, is just saying just this morning again, as he says regularly, there are no smart scientists. There's only those who've done humanities as well. You know, who can actually communicate and look at the how actually the world actually functions, even though they might be highly specialised in a particular discipline. And I think this is a critical opportunity for universities to operate. Who are universities really good for? They're not necessarily for everybody. What other sorts of post-school education might provide different kinds of experiential learning? I was doing something yesterday with the National Art School, which I dearly love. It does things in really different ways in diff and makes use of different sets of skills in particular ways. So I think in that whole post-school world, we're looking for the same thing, a really enriched environment mm. that people continue to grow and develop more complex skills for the modern world. And as you say, it is the peak age of onset of really major mental health problems. So we've got to have really good pathways to care. It's not the role of the universities or schools, I don't think, to be the health system at any stage, but we've got to facilitate those who need better care so they can continue to participate in education and skill development best we can. 
Now, Mark, you've had the odd stressful job being the managing director of the ABC isn't the most relaxing job in the world, and I'm sure there was the odd bit of stress in uh, running the education department, and now you landed in charge of a huge university and you've got to get your head around about a million things. How do you take care of your own mental health? What do you do and, and what have you learnt about maintaining it over the years? Uh, well, I think uh, I think Ian would say my brain is still growing. You know, um, I'm not sure that's quite true now, but but um, I've had to reflect. I've reflected on a lot, uh, James, over the years. I think, um, and and part of it, I think, has been to learn over the years. I think I think people have worked with me have said that in a crisis, I, I think I've learned how to be calm not quite detached from the crisis, but to try and keep a sense of perspective and judgment um, that this too will pass. The sun will come up tomorrow morning. One of my wife's favourite lines, which I, I like, is if you're going to laugh about it one day, you may as well start laughing about it now, you know, just to try and keep some perspective uh, on. Um, but the other, but I think um, I, I've re reflected um quite a lot and read quite a lot. The Department of Education did good work on this on cognitive load. And one of the things that I've found beneficial is to just try and build some habits in my life that are fairly steady and fairly constant that I don't think about too much. One of the things I do every morning, and I have done this for a while now, I took it out of um, uh, a book by I think Julia Cameron, The Artist Way, is I get up and I write three pages every morning. Wow. Uh, I just write out three pages. It's just whatever's on my mind, whatever I'm thinking about, whatever's thing. Um, I then, uh, in you know, recognising they're historians and archivists who are nosy people, I shred those pages. It's not actually a diary <laughs> that I'm keeping. It's just a way of thinking things through in a slow and deliberative way. And then I'll um, meditate for a bit or just spend some quiet, reflective time, and then I'll go for a walk, right? And that's how I start my mornings. And the fact that I kind of do that every morning, every workday anyway, that's a kind of a ritual, I think, that it kind of balances me and kind of uh, bases me. Um, I think um, having a wife and three daughters who are all formidable, more intelligent than me, quite outspoken, I find, you know, I've lived under a matriarchy for a long period of time now, James. So, um, you know, I think that helps keep everything in perspective uh, too. And look, and, and, and like every family, um, uh, our broader family have had real issues with mental health. I've had, we've had real mental health issues in the broader community that we have been part of. And that I think has encouraged me to um, think about this and to read about this and to reflect about um uh, those areas where we need to respond as far as health treatments are concerned, but also those areas where we have agency uh, ourselves. And, um, you know, so I try and be as informed as I can be and reflective as I can be and to put things in place that the research and evidence would say would be a sound and sensible thing to do. Very good. Sounds excellent. As a, as a resident of a matriarchy myself, I endorse your comments on that. Finally, a book for people who you'd like to recommend, for people who are interested in the workings of their brain and mind and mental health. Uh, I haven't given you any notice on this, but does anything spring well, to mind? Well, I think I, I did read, um, I'm not sure who uh, has who um, wrote it. But The Body Keeps the Score, I found kind of an interesting book that came out a couple of years ago, which is all about um, uh, 
in a sense, trauma and the impact of the life that we live um, uh, on our mental health and our mental well-being. Uh, there was a, a friend of mine who had been who had been through uh, trauma and had suffered post-traumatic stress disorder, and to come to a deeper understanding of the um, the impact of, I suppose, trauma, uh, I found kind of interesting and and compelling. Uh, I've read multiple books on meditation and mindfulness and all these things as well that people have read uh, over the years, and I find I often find it's good to do a refresher on those things as well. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, Mark. It was lovely to lovely to talk to you. Thanks, James. Thanks, Ian. If you have any questions or comments or want to suggest further topics for us to discuss, do get in touch. You can email at mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. That's the number two. And Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Just Google them. You can call Lifeline on 13114. Talk to you next time.